Hi everyone, this is Dr. Michael Wald. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective, and as always, I appreciate uh, you taking this time out to listen to the show. I mean, it's really a it's really a big deal for me. I get calls from some of you thanking me for the topics, and also, um, you know, providing insights and other show topic ideas, and that's what has me generate the types of uh, topics that I've been uh, producing. Today's show topic is sort of a mishmash of different health concepts and practices that I hear from my current patients that I'm uh, told about or asked about through email uh, by many of you and in the general public that I believe are very important to clarify. So we're going to speak about everything from intermittent fasting to what sorts of protein in the diet is better, are animal proteins better than plant proteins, and for what health problems, and also about iron. What about plant sources of iron versus animal sources of iron for correcting anemia? What about kombucha? Is that all hype or is there anything to it? To basic things that are sort of important like, is dairy really phlegm producing? (laughs) And if it is, does that actually pose a health risk? Something else I hear a lot about which we'll talk about today is, well, basically, what's the deal with gluten anyway? Um, is gluten different uh, in European nations as opposed to United States? And what are the health implications of different forms of gluten? I'll also cover sugar, uh, what I call the good, the bad, and the ugly concepts about sugars because there are different types of sugars. So we want to be careful when we say that sugar is bad because that's like saying all fats are bad. I think you get the the gist of it now, right? I'll include a conversation about are vitamins all equal? You may think you know what I'm going to talk about there, but I promise you, you're going to learn something new. And I'll speak about intermittent fasting and can it cause eating disorders, neuroticism, and malnutrition? And the different methods of intermittent fasting, the 16-8 method and the 5-2 method and Is this really something that you should be doing? And finally, are organic foods better than non-organic foods? Okay, if you want to hear about all of that, you have to stay tuned right now because that's what we're going to talk about. So for those of you just joining us or those of you that are new to the show, again, thank you so much. My name is Dr. Michael Wald and I practice in Westchester, New York, located in about an hour or so north of New York City in a beautiful little town called Katona. And to reach me directly, you can email me at info at blooddetective.com, info at blooddetective.com. And you can visit my website. I have tons of free materials there. And that's drmichaelwald.com. There's no spaces. There's no dots. Simply drmichaelwald.com. Okay. So let's hit the first concept here. And I'll, I'll pose it to you as a question and then I'll respond. So what are good sources of non-animal protein and how much protein does a person actually need every day? Well, 
The vegan sources of protein are many. So I'll just name a few of them that are probably at the top of my list. But if you have a digestive problem to each of these, or you might have an allergy to these proteins or some sort of intolerance, then obviously these proteins are not for you. And depending on your health problem, you might require more or less different proteins in your diet, or more specifically, certain amino acids in your diet that are more prevalently found within certain protein foods, like rice and beans and peas, lentils, quinoa. What I'm telling you now are the the good sources of non-animal proteins, chia seeds, wheat gluten, unless you have a gluten problem. Some people actually do not. Almonds, chickpeas, tempeh, pumpkin seeds, tofu, edamame, which I love, peanut butter, and nutritional yeast. Those are some of the top non-animal sources of protein. And for those of you who want a complete protein, meaning a protein that has all of the essential amino acids, Essential amino acids are the amino acids that are essential because you cannot make them in the body. What you can make from the essential amino acids are what are known as the non-essential ones. Now, the non-essential amino acids are important. They are not not essential for the body. They're just called non-essential because you don't make them. Or meaning, sorry, the non-essentials you do make. The essential ones you do not make, so it is essential that you eat them. I hope that wasn't too confusing. So to summarize the essential ones, you must get from the diet and then your body will make, we hope, the non-essential ones from that. I have found in, in quite a number of people actually when I've done amino acid testing that there are many people that actually do not make the non-essential amino acids even though they have plenty of essential amino acids. So this is a concept, by the way, that's taught in chiropractic school, that's taught in master level nutrition courses, it's taught in uh, medical school, that if you eat the essential amino acids, you'll make the non-essential ones. And I'm telling you, that is not necessarily true. So the next part of the question was, how much protein do we need? Well, it's a bit complex, but let me start out by telling you this. Protein needs are based upon a number of factors, as you might imagine. They're based upon your age. You know, as you grow older, the need for protein increases because you're starting to waste away. You're literally atrophying, which means you're shrinking. Your organ mass is atrophying. And that's because the body is not as successful as you age at building up the tissue so they break down. And as the protein elements of your organs break down, they're not normal looking anymore to your immune system. And what is that going to produce? Well, some of you have guessed it. It'll produce autoimmune responses in the body. When the body breaks down and is not normal looking any longer, the the immune system attacks the body, which breaks down the amino acids further creating this vicious cycle of degeneration, which is the definition of autoimmune disease. And it's not good enough just to eat more proteins because what else happens dramatically from about age 50 on? What happens is that we don't absorb what we eat well, as well as we did compared to when we were younger. So that means 
some effort should be spent, and I spend a lot of time with my patients on this, doing tests of malabsorption, that's a fancy term for not absorbing normally, and fixing that as much as possible. If you malabsorb by 50%, what might that look like in, in, in terms of your health? The answer is, if you malabsorb by any percentage, it could look like your health problems. Because all the tissues are made of amino acids, immune molecules are made of amino acids, and if you can't absorb those, you start to break down. So in one person, that might look like osteoporosis, and another person, it might look like multiple sclerosis, or lupus, or cancer, or diabetes, or heart disease, or any number of autoimmune diseases or inflammatory-mediated diseases. So, very important that you recognize, as I've said so many times on this show, on Ask the Blood Detective is, and again, some of you know what I'm going to say, you are not what you eat. That is a lie. It was never true. You are what you absorb from what you eat and ultimately the consequences of what you do not absorb. So, I mentioned that protein needs are based on age for all of those complex reasons. In addition, your activity level. If you're a very active person and you want to build your lean mass, which includes, by the way, your musculoskeletal system and your muscles, you must consume more protein or better yet, absorb more protein. What I do is a test called the bioimpedance test. And what that tells me with my patients is exactly their metabolic rate. See, if you don't know your metabolic rate, you cannot know accurately what your daily food intake should be for weight loss or let's say muscle gain. You have to know what your metabolic rate is. You have to know if you absorb normally or not. If you're serious about your health, an absorption test and a bioimpedance test are fundamental. And I'm astounded, astounded at how many people see me that have been going to what are considered pretty astute healthcare providers and these tests were never done. And they've wasted months and months or years and years of effort and money on trying to get better, taking all the right things that they're not absorbing, not based on their metabolic rate. I mean, do you really believe that your nutritional needs are the same as mine or your mother's or your cousin's or a 300-pound person or a 119-pound person? It would be ridiculous to think that. The bioimpedance test also tells us the percentage of how much of your body is composed of muscle, water, and fat. So in terms of that, we want to consider what your lean body mass is, so we can measure that as a percentage. Another important factor for trying to figure out how much protein you need to maintain your health and to build your health is, well, first of all, what is the state of your health right now? Because if you have any chronic health problem at all, anything, your need for protein is likely increased, except if you have renal disease, particularly if you have acute renal failure. If you have acute renal failure, you're likely going to be in a hospital. But before you're in a hospital, you're not, and you might be suffering from this. And uh, the consumption of animal proteins uh, drastically worsens renal function in its already diminished state during acute renal failure. Most people, though, are going to be dealing with chronic renal failure. 
And if you're over age 60 or so, you might have chronic renal failure right now and not even know it. You'd wanna ask your doctor to test you for that. Now, usually it's a standard test on a CBC and a chemistry, which is, again, the kind of standard blood you're used to getting from your internist. But the thing about it is, many doctors do not tell their patients that they have chronic renal failure. And you might say, well, what? what is that about? Well, like so many things on a blood test, if there are some abnormalities, but they don't add up to a nice, neat little diagnosis in traditional medicine, they're ignored. I cannot begin to emphasize to you how many patients that I see where they give me their lab work and I am looking at all sorts of abnormalities on their tests and they are completely shocked. It's not my intention to shock them. I mean, after all, I didn't create the abnormalities, but they're there and they simply weren't told about them. So chronic renal failure can shorten your life. And the kidneys are about the weakest organs in the body in a general sense. There's a book known as Biomarkers, written by the gerontologist, the aging specialist at Tufts University, and they talk about this and the weakness of the kidneys. All you ever hear people talking about in alternative healthcare is the liver, the liver, the liver, the liver, or maybe the gut. You don't hear much about the kidneys at all, and that's a mistake. And to not pay attention to the kidneys in terms of prevention of their decline and to restore their function is a huge error and will affect the course of, of the person's life by shortening it and, and increasing the level of disability. Another factor that impacts your need for protein is whether or not, I mentioned you, malabsorb. So if you're age 50 or older, you have about a 60% chance of malabsorbing right now. And remember what I said, that the symptoms of malabsorption could look like, could manifest as the chronic health problems that you have. Remember, a diagnosis is an, uh, is an invented term based on a constellation of symptoms and signs. By the way, signs are things that doctors see on you and symptoms are things that you tell the doctor. And that's just, or commonly is, signs of malabsorption. So there's a simple test for that, and it needs to be done if you're serious about your health, in my opinion. So I've talked about what the top non-meat vegetarian proteins are. And by the way, vegetarian proteins do not adversely affect the kidneys during renal failure, but animal proteins do. So yes, as another question and answer, there is a big difference between plant and animal proteins from a health perspective. Now, what about iron uh, from non-animal sources? I'm asked this a lot. And you might wanna pay attention to this because at some point in your life, you might become iron anemic. Anemic means deficiency. There are over a dozen types of anemias. There's something known as glutathione anemia, there's vitamin C anemia, B12, B6, folic acid, protein anemias, the list goes on, of course, iron anemia. Iron anemia being the most common deficiency worldwide on the planet Earth. So if you have anemia, your doctor is gonna tell you that on your blood test, your hemoglobin is low, and your hematocrit might also be low, and your serum iron might be low, but it's not always. So many lay people think that iron anemia is diagnosed on a test by looking at the serum iron, 
but it's simply not. And just for your education, there's something known as ferritin, ferritin, which is a measurement in the serum of what's called the storage form of iron. Now let's just put that aside. So iron anemia, you're gonna have a low hemoglobin and hematocrit and possibly iron. The doctor will usually prescribe a certain amount of iron uh, commensurate with the level of the iron anemia or deficiency. The type of iron does seem to matter. Uh, animal sources of iron or synthetic sources of iron are far better absorbed, far better, than plant sources of iron. You'll find in products like Floridix, uh, these products are uh, worthless for iron anemia. They are, or Floridex and, and other types of non-animal iron may be useful as a daily supplement to help offset or prevent iron anemia. But I, also, I don't suggest that you use them for that purpose because if for some reason you accumulate too much iron over the years of taking these products, Excessive iron intake is a serious health problem, increasing your risk of cancer, inflammation in general, and certainly heart disease. So the long and short of it is, is that iron from animal sources is known as heme iron, and that's far more bioavailable than non-heme iron, which is from plants. So when you read in books or practitioners tell you, you can get all this iron from spinach, for example, you can, it's there, but it's not bioavailable. Or not, it's very little, uh, little availability. Now, if you combine the plant iron, the non-heme, with vitamin C, it will become uh, more bioavailable because the ascorbic acid molecularly changes the non-heme iron partially to heme iron through a process known as reduction. So uh, the best way to manage iron anemia is to, first of all, if you have it, you have to know the cause. If you're a man, man with iron anemia, that mostly may indicate either internal or external hemorrhoids. It could be uh, ulcers higher up in the gastrointestinal tract um, and colon cancer. If a woman has, has iron anemia, Mostly it's due to uh, menstruation and a lack of iron intake from the diet, which doesn't um, cause the replenishment of iron lost uh, through menstruation. Let's talk about kombucha. The question I get a lot is, is kombucha a good source of vitamin B12 or, or is it just a fad? Well, kombucha is a slightly bubbly, sour tasting drink that consists of a combination of sugar, yeast, uh, black tea, sometimes green tea, that's been allowed to ferment. And that's certainly healthy. Now, what you should know is the gut of a healthy person is about 85% or so good bacteria and about 15% bad bacteria. And kombucha, though, helps restore or helps to rebalance the intestinal milieu, the intestinal flora. But unfortunately, it is not it is not a reliable source of vitamin B12. If someone is low in B12, again, the cause of the deficiency should be sought. It could be from malabsorption, so you can take all the B12 you want and it won't work. And then once you identify it and, you, and then it's, you're cleared that B12 
should be supplemented, then you should probably take B12 in what's known as the methylated form. So there's a couple of different forms of B12, and they're not all the same. There's methylated B12, as I just said. There's adenosylcobalamin, which is a different form of B12. There's hydroxycobalamin and the cyanocobalamin. Now, for certain conditions, certain types of B12 are better. But overall, the methylated form is the best one. But remember what I said, depending on your health problem, you might actually benefit from the cyanocobalamin form better than the methylcobalamin form. The methylcobalamin is usually the best because it has a methyl group. Now, what do you suppose the best test for B12 is? Because there are lots of different tests, and patients are always asking me, Dr. Wald, as the blood detective, what is the best test for vitamin B12 and all these other vitamins? Should we do vitamin levels in my blood? And the answer most of the time is no, because blood levels of various vitamins and minerals generally only represent the last three to four days of intake. So when it comes to B12, for example, and I wish we had time to review all the other nutritional supplements, um, and I do in my laboratory book called The Anti-Aging Encyclopedia of Nutritional Tests. It's a 500-page textbook that is required reading in a number of nutritional programs in the United States. But the best test for B12 is for a practitioner to look at the red blood cell size under a microscope. So red blood cells, as you know, carry oxygen and carbon dioxide, and they need to be a particular size to work well physiologically in the body. When a person is deficient in B12, red blood cell size increases. The red blood cell gets heavier. It's a strain on the heart, increasing heart disease risk. Uh, it also does not allow the red blood cell to live as long as it should, that you know, four-month period of time or 120 days. So that puts a strain on the bone marrow to produce more red blood cells. The red blood cells would be large, and that's called a macrocyte. When you take B12, you could fix the deficiency in the blood. In other words, the blood level, the doctor will say, oh, your blood level B12 is too low, we need to get it increased. That may or may not fix the B12 problem. B12 needs to go into the red blood cell and get utilized. When it's utilized, the red blood cell is a normal size. When the B12 does not get in the cell, the cell gets large. And they call that a macrocyte. Macro meaning large, micro meaning small. And by the way, in iron anemia, iron deficiency, the red blood cell gets tiny. In B12, folic acid, and vitamin B6 anemia, the red blood cell gets larger. And when a person has both or all of these anemias, I should say, together, it confuses the cell size. And you really have to have an expert looking at the labs to distinguish what you need. And B12 is required for all sorts of essential functions in the body, ranging from energy production to neurologic function, even detoxification. So when you give B12, you want the red blood cells to be the same size. And that might leave the blood levels of B12 high, or the, the levels of B12 could simply be normal. But the thing to take away from this conversation is, you wanna make sure the red blood cell size is examined and is normal. That tells you that the B12 you took was the correct dose. And B12, by the way, once you fix the deficiency, stores in the liver for about four to five years. So it doesn't have to be supplemented all the time. Although there are some exceptions. Okay, 
Let's talk about dairy products. Are dairy products phlegm producing? Well, the answer is yes. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about that. Although it's so, so odd to me and to so many of you, I'm sure, because you've told me this, is that you've gone to your doctors and complained about how dairy products can, particularly your allergists, can cause phlegm, and they're like, no, it can't. So they say that because they didn't learn that in medical school. And they just didn't do any extra studying to figure it out. But anyone with any common sense, which is not so common, by the way, so I don't know why they call it common sense, uh, will know that this is, this is a, a common uh, symptom, phlegm, from dairy. But dairy is also a potential allergen, and that can cause the body to produce phlegm as well, not to mention inflammation and leaky gut syndrome and even SIBO, which is small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And... Sensitivities to dairy are usually associated with bone loss, osteopenia or osteoporosis, different forms of bone loss. Dairy also has a way of triggering the immune system, causing autoimmune diseases, even increasing the risk of certain cancers like lymphoma. And they even know in multiple sclerosis, for example, that the higher your intake of dairy is as an adolescent, the worst course of multiple sclerosis you will likely have. Now, we all know that milk can disturb digestive function in a person with lactose intolerance. And there's no way around that unless you get lactose-free milk. Or better yet, drink almond milk, rice milk, or soy milk. Okay? Now, then people say to me, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Milk is healthy because it has vitamin D in it. And D is so important. Everyone's talking about vitamin D. Yes, vitamin D is important. But milk contains vitamin D2. It does not contain vitamin D3. Vitamin D3 is what the research is screaming about as far as benefit. It's the best form of vitamin D. The other thing I should mention is that with vitamin D, you want your blood level to be a 70. I've said that many times before. We don't simply want your vitamin D to be within the normal blood range of 30 to 100. Most doctors, if you're 35, they'll look at you straight in the face and say you're fine. But the National, National Institutes of Health says that the higher normal your vitamin D, up to 100, the lower your overall risk of death and disability is. That is a big statement, and it's absolutely true. So why do Americans drink such large amounts of dairy products? I was just asked this by someone. And uh, the answer, I think, is that it is a cultural thing. It was, has just been there. We all grew up doing it, or most of us, and we've gotten used to it, and that's why people do it. Uh, but even when you provide people with uh, information about the dangers and the harm of, of dairy products, they still seem to drink it. I, I dare say that most people are incapable of changing these bad habits, even, with, even when they're provided with uh, you know, education uh, that flies in the face of why they would be consuming milk, thinking that milk is somehow healthy for them. That's unfortunate, but in, unless a person's willing to manage their emotions over the problem, because it's really emotional, uh, then they will continue to, to drink milk and suffer from more cardiovascular disease, more cancers and autoimmune diseases, and even diabetes. And there's, there's other conditions associated with, with milk as well. Well, for example, 
it just occurred to me, I should mention that the higher, you won't believe this, the higher your dairy intake, the higher your risk of developing osteoporosis, a condition that doctors have, for years have been telling people to drink more milk for. And they did that because of the calcium content in milk. But milk is about 50 times higher in phosphorus, which offsets the calcium absorption. So it seems that the higher your milk intake, the, the higher your risk of osteoporosis. It's unbelievable, but it is true, and I've seen it over my 30-plus year career. Now, let's move into gluten for a moment. So someone just said to me, and I'm going to let you know exactly what they said. They said, Dr. Wald, what's the deal with gluten? <laughs> I, said, I said, the deal with gluten is that it is for many people uh, in immune and intestinal, at the very least, irritant. It affects many, many other tissues in the body. But um, it is an irritant potentially. And the, and the thing is, they also asked me, they said, what's the deal with U.S. wheat versus European wheat? And they also said, is, like, is that why so many people in the U.S. report gluten intolerance? Because the gluten in the U.S. is different from the, the types of gluten in Europe. Well, around 60% of U.S. wheat production is of what's known as the hard red uh, wheat variety. Just 23% consists of the soft wheat. In Europe, the principal strains of wheat are generally the soft variety. Hard wheat has more gluten in it than soft wheat. And the gluten that it does contain is stronger of a reactant than gluten found in soft wheat. So this tough gluten is ideal, by the way, for baking and uh, fluffy bread that people are used to consuming in the United States. But the other thing I believe you should know about gluten is that Obviously, the main gluten malabsorption disease is known as celiac disease. And if you have celiac disease, you must eliminate gluten. There's no other way around it. Uh, and when you do eliminate gluten, your intestinal, the intestinal damage that is usually caused by gluten, which affect the absorptive cells in the small intestine, known as the intestinal villi, they recover completely in around six to eight weeks. Six to eight weeks. Now, just because the intestine might function completely normally after eliminating gluten for six to eight weeks doesn't mean that your health problems go away. Because if gluten caused malabsorption over years and caused infertility or Hashimoto's thyroiditis or multiple sclerosis or lymphoma or eczema or another skin condition known as uh, dermatitis herpetiformis, or diabetes as real examples, you have to then, the practitioner, and you must focus on the other deficiencies and health issues that have been caused secondary to gluten intake. I've seen so many people just get diagnosed, they eliminate the gluten and they go on forever complaining of their health problems and wondering why that is they eliminated the gluten. It should be pretty obvious that there, is a, there are deleterious effects of gluten on the body and once you remove the trigger, gluten, you might have to clean up. You know, it's like if a, if a fire happens in a, in a room and the fire is gluten and you put it out, no one thinks that the, the room won't smell funny, it's gonna smell funny. 
the, the, the floor might be damaged, the, the walls, the ceiling might be damaged. So that may take time to identify and to correct. And as far as the gluten blood testing, it is somewhat, it is pretty accurate actually. And there are several tests that, that can be done. I won't review them now uh, for detecting gluten intolerance. But if you want to know if you have a gluten problem or intolerance, uh, you simply eliminate the gluten for about four weeks entirely and then add it back into your diet. And you probably should do this under the auspices of a qualified a clinical nutritionist, prefer, preferably a doctor, uh, so that if you have an adverse reaction, you can be properly uh, counseled and that can be taken care of. So there is a difference between celiac disease and non-celiac gluten intolerance and gluten allergy and gluten intolerance. Um, I've reviewed this somewhat on a video on my website that you can view at drmichaelwald.com. And you can search the search bar on the homepage for all other sorts of content on gluten. In fact, I believe my entire book, Glutenaholic, is posted on my website uh, that you can read. And again, if you want to email me with questions or show ideas, you can do that at info at blooddetective.com. If you want to work with me personally on your health problems, simply call me at 914-552-1442. I work with people at a distance and also face-to-face. All right, now let's move on to sugar. We're covering a lot of key concepts, so important. Because if we can know this and we can make changes in our lives consistent with these, these environmental problems like diet, we're likely going to live longer during the non-disability stage of life. That's the stage of life where you are simply healthier for a lot longer because we all know that statistically people are living longer these days. We are but we're living longer with what's called disease clusters. We have nine diseases at one time. So I think that is a failure. So let's talk about sugar. Is it bad? Why is it bad? Well, again, I want to direct you to drmichaelwald.com because if you look up sugar in the search bar, you'll see an article called Sugar, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and that will uh, go through quite a lot on the the, uh, adverse effects of sugar upon the body. And you'll also see a list of like the top 50 physiologic problems that sugar causes in the body. I'll name a few of them now, but you can read the rest of that by going to the website at drmichaelwald.com. So the questions I'm usually getting, I'm actually reading them right now is, is fruit sugar equally bad uh, to non-fruit sugar? So first of all, the answer is possibly. Fruit sugar is fructose. And fruit is composed of fructose, except grapes are glucose. So glucose is a simple sugar, as is fructose, but they're structurally different, similar but different. And for example, when I run a marathon, I like to eat grapes during my run and load up with them after my run, as soon after my run as possible, because the body will resorb the glucose much faster when its glycogen stores are depleted, like from heavy working out. And 
by doing that, you can increase your recovery time for the next workout. And of course, if you increase your recovery time and you're working out better, that's going to help your quality of life through exercise. Now, sucrose is table sugar, and that's about as evil as it gets. It will promote everything from inflammation to uh, autoimmune problems to de- suppressing the immune system. You know, autoimmune problems are hyperimmunity, and then sugar also causes low immunity. It, it suppresses what's called a cell-mediated immune system, and it will aggravate and stimulate the humoral immune system, which is a pro-inflammatory immune system for the most part. Tissue healing, mood, energy, behavior, disease risk for diabetes, heart disease, you you name it, cancers, uh, will be promoted, will absolutely be promoted by glucose and by sucrose. But if you have the glucose like I do when I, after I run and during my runs, in the form of grapes, my body's managing them fine. But if you're not athletic, then you probably would not want to load up on glucose unless you needed them as a rescue remedy for a hypoglycemic reaction. But not all sugar, again, is the same. So it's important to know that. Okay, I think that's where I'll leave it on the sugars. Well, maybe with the exception of mentioning this, You know, artificial sweeteners, they probably do not cause spikes in blood sugar, but they may have adverse health effects in and of themselves, like saccharin, certainly. But they will not generally alter the blood sugar level. Theoretically, they could by acting on bacteria in the gut, and that might increase blood sugar, but I've never seen that. Uh, I've just never seen that in real practice. Another question I kind of just stuck in here, I'll respond to it super quickly is, is honey vegan? (laughs) That's an interesting question. Um, Well, if you consider bees animals, which they're they're technically not, uh, then if you consider them animals, then obviously honey is not vegan. But bees are not animals, so honey, I would say, is in fact vegan. The other topic has to do with, are all vitamins equal? Before I get to that topic, I just want to give my phone number again. It's 914-552-1442. If any of you have show ideas or criticisms or comments on the show, please let me hear from you. Probably best to email the questions though to info at blooddetective.com or you can go through the website at drmichaelwall.com. So are all vitamins equal? The answer is no, they're not. We have, on a basic level, fat-soluble vitamins, and we have water-soluble vitamins. Fat-soluble vitamins are vitamins A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K, melatonin, omega-3 fatty acids, lipoic acids, uh, omega-3 fatty acids, and there are others. And the fat-soluble vitamins have a greater risk of toxicity in the body because they are, in fact, fat-soluble, so they get stored in the fat tissue and in the liver. The water-soluble vitamins, like B vitamins and vitamin C, by definition, are water-soluble, which means if you take too many of them, you will wash them out in your urine, okay? Now, there are other differences in vitamins that you should know about. 
And this is true of minerals too. But I should say that minerals, compared to vitamins, minerals have a very short window of toxicity, meaning you can cause toxicity problems by taking too many minerals easier than you can by taking too many vitamins. And of course, this effect is dependent on how much and what you're taking and, and your body, but generally is considered true. Now, there are different forms of different vitamins. So for example, there is vitamin C, which is uh, in the common form called ascorbic acid, but there's also ascorbate, which is a buffered vitamin C that's complexed with minerals like magnesium and potassium and zinc. Now, vitamin B1, thymine, is in a common form in many multivitamins as thymine hydrochloride. This is the cheapest form of vitamin B1 and needs to be activated in the body. But there are activated forms of B1 and B2 and B3 and B5 and B6 and B12, all these vitamins that are the preferred forms that you will find in the highest quality vitamins. The other thing is though, is you can have a list of ingredients on the back of a vitamin bottle and you might have all the active vitamins there, all of the best forms. But the problem is, if those vitamins were manufactured in a substandard way, they'll look great on the label, but they're basically overcooked and, and malprocessed. So some of my patients will say, well, Dr. Wald, I've compared what you have on your vitamins uh, with your label on it and this other company, they look pretty much the same. Here's what I can tell you. If you wanna know if one vitamin company is better than another, it is, it's very easy. All you need to do is call up the vitamin company and say, I would like a full disclosure label. That means the company will provide you with a label of the quality control assay of the supplement. If they say to you, what, <laughs> then hang up the phone and don't take those vitamins. If they say, absolutely, I'll send you that and they never do, don't take them. The supplements that I have from my label are all pharmaceutical grade, produced in facilities that follow FDA and other quality control guidelines. So when a patient says to me, can I have an assay of your quality control? I can provide them that. So they know it's not just a matter of me, the practitioner, selling them vitamins, but the only reason in fact I sell vitamins is because of the poor quality of vitamins that are generally available commercially. But some of you are saying, no, 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 I use a really good company. How do you know? They told you that, you read that on their website. That, none of that matters. That is not scientific enough. So I just wanted to give you some insight that not all vitamins are the same because they have different forms. They may have been processed inadequately or in a superior way. Uh, and then there's fat and water-soluble forms of vitamins. And of course, there's other uh, nutraceuticals. That means pretty much everything else you might think of, like all the plant phytonutrients. And you know they also, uh, it's all down to the manufacturing uh, process, whether or not that product is fit for your consumption and is appropriate for your uh, health problem. And, and also keep in mind that 
when you use nutritional supplements and or eating a certain way or even exercising a certain way, as your health needs change, hopefully improve, but one way or another, your whole health practice needs to be adjusted from time to time. Because if it's not, you're not keeping up with your body's aging, increased needs, your stress, uh, how well your body is processing these nutrients. That's where testing comes in and very detailed question and answers between you and your healthcare provider and putting that all together with other factors. And all of that tells you about your nutritional needs. So for example, I do a variety of blood tests on myself, and, and not just blood tests, other types of tests, every several months. And uh, I'm constantly having to make adjustments to my intake of supplementation uh, based upon my changing needs. I may have exercised much more those six or seven months than I did prior, which, which affected my nutritional needs. I may have had more or less stress, more or less sleep, more or less hydration. Uh, genetics may play a factor, medications might play a factor, uh, environmental exposures to toxins of different types. These problems in the environment can sneak up on the body. And when you're not checking your labs on a periodic basis, you simply miss out. You simply miss opportunities, which are the key opportunities to maintain and improve your health. Too many people are not consistent with their health efforts. They start out like gangbusters and they don't follow through. They're not doing the appropriate testing. Okay. Let's talk about intermittent fasting because this is, of course, as everyone knows, has, has overtaken so much of social media. And the thing about intermittent fasting is that it is complex. So the question is, what is intermittent fasting? And can it First of all, can it cause health problems? Can it cause eating disorders? Can it cause malnutrition? Can it cause neuroticism? Well, the answer for all of those is absolutely it can. Of course it can. If you have a history of eating disorders, you never want to fast like this. It can put you on a road of no return. You do not put young people or immature people or emotionally immature people on fasts because it creates other, it can create other lifestyle habits uh, such as eating disorder uh, and neuroticisms around intake that are very, very difficult to treat and to manage. You could search my website at drmichaelwall.com and that'll bring up my intermittent fasting radio show. And here's the thing, intermittent fasting, it's not a diet, uh, it's, an, it's an eating pattern. Uh, it, it, that's what it is. It's an eating pattern approach to health and is loosely based on hunter-gatherers who, as you know, may have gone long periods of not eating. So if that is true, and it certainly is probably true that hunter-gatherers uh, went long periods without eating, people now make conclusions that if that's true for hunter-gatherers, then perhaps we should not be eating as much because we have descended from them. Well, if you believe in evolution, then yes, we have descended from those paleo ancestors, but that is not any evidence to suggest that we should be eating like them. I mean, things have changed over millions of years uh, to the point where it's just not fair to say that we should be fasting for long periods. 
But let's, for argument's sake, say that there are cases where people should fast for 16 hours, let's say. And um, that may be true, but that doesn't mean it's true for the next person or it's appropriate for the next person. What if that person has hypoglycemia? What if that person has cancer? Should they be fasting for 16 hours? I just had a patient with cancer who was doing that and I was re reviewing her health history and she had lost over 20 pounds in the last eight months. And then when uh, it was revealed during my questioning of her that she fasted for so long on such a regular basis, I told her that she must stop immediately. And she says, but I've heard that intermittent fasting is healthy. I said, but you have cancer. So you're not part of the regular population and it's not necessarily healthy for lots of people in the population. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Dr. Wald, I know lots of people, including myself. I felt great doing it. Well, why should feeling great be evidence of that something worked? Because this woman with cancer feels great. She has metastatic cancer everywhere um, and she feels pretty good. So it is wrong to think that just because you feel better, you can feel better for lots of reasons, including you did something you thought would help you. And these placebo effects may not translate into real health effects, okay? Now, I am not saying that fasting uh, for various periods is completely useless because I believe that it does have its, its place, but not for the reasons given and not as a general practice. But when things get into social media, everything's a general practice. And when I go on these Facebook pages, these group pages for intermittent fasting, I am astounded at the harm people can do based upon what they are talking about. And it's not just true of intermittent fasting. As I've mentioned during past shows, I've gone on group pages on Facebook uh, for the cancer pages, and I must tell you that nearly everything I read, with few exceptions, is at all reasonable, and it's so dangerous that it is astounding to me. People believe some of the things that they are saying. So you'll have to listen to the last couple of my shows to find out more about that. So you probably know that there's several variations of intermittent fasting, including the 1618, I'm sorry, the 168, where you fast for 16 hours and you eat during the eight hour window. Um, and it's between 14 and 15 hours fast for women, by the way. Now, how do you know if you should do the 1618 or you should do the 5-2? Well, you really cannot know unless you've had the proper intake with a qualified healthcare provider, you've had the proper laboratory tests and detailed health consultation, which includes a thorough review of your past and present health issues because your, the fasting methods might deprive you of nutrition and worsen your health problems. But once again, let me just review these intermittent fasting uh, protocols. So the 16-8 method involves skipping breakfast and restricting your, your daily eating period to eight hours, such as like one to 9 p.m. Then you fast for 16 hours in between. And then there's the eat, stop, eat, which involves fasting for 24 hours once or twice a week 
For example, by not eating from dinner one day until dinner the next day. And then there's the 5-2 diet. Now with this method, you consume five to 600 calories on two non-consecutive days of the week, but eat normally the other five. So by reducing your calorie intake, all the methods should cause weight loss as long as you don't completely compensate by eating much more during the eating periods. Now, many people find that the 16-8 method to be the simplest, most sustainable, easiest to stick to, and it does seem to be the most popular. So I hope that that information and those, my insights on intermittent fasting uh, make some sense. Now, for the last concept, let's talk about organic foods versus non-organic foods. I know you think you've heard everything here, but let's hang in with me for just a few more minutes. So... Does it matter to eat organically versus non-organically? Well, the answer I say is absolutely yes, it matters. Of course it matters. <laughs> um, non-organic foods contain pesticides. They contain hormones. They contain antibiotic-resistant bacteria and antibiotics. And these antibiotic-resistant bacteria and the hormones, they're all passed on to you. You eat them. They go to your gut. Not to mention that non-organic foods may be, uh, well, they are, well, I'm sorry, they may be GMO, and organic foods are generally not genetically modified foods. Some of you know that I wrote a book which covers uh, all the popular questions and answers regarding GMOs called Frankenfoods. And um, if you look at my contact section of my website at drmichaelwald.com, you can find out how to get a free copy of that book. Now, we're talking about whether or not organic foods versus non-organic foods can cause health problems. Well, pesticides are in non-organic foods, and they are known to be related to several cancers several autoimmune diseases, and they contribute, as I mentioned, to antibiotic resistance, which is a worldwide health problem. It's huge. Pesticides can cause bladder cancer and who knows what else. So for anyone to claim that there's no difference between organic and inorganic is completely diluting themselves. Now, it might be true that organic foods and inorganic foods contain this, uh, an equivalent nutritional intake. That might be true. But that's not the only factor, obviously, to consider when you're trying to choose between organic and inorganic foods. The thing also to know about non-organic foods is that they contain steroids, such as growth hormone, even testosterone. And of course, these are given to animals to stimulate growth, to stimulate more meat production and less fat production. And some of these hormones have long uh, lives in the blood and they're in the muscle. And depending upon when the animal is killed, the cow, for example, or whatever animal we're talking about, that their, their flesh will contain varying amounts of these potentially harmful steroids. These are the same steroids, by the way, the exact same steroids, that bodybuilders are famous for taking, for injecting 
to get their big muscles. And what's so uh, unbelievable, if you go online, you look up, you know, steroid injections in dogs and cats and these experiments, they show you these muscle bound animals are quite frightening. They don't talk so much about, about the tumor growth that these uh, steroids can produce. They can cause kidney problems. They certainly cause liver problems. They raise cardiovascular risk exponentially. They increase clotting tendency and stroke and hemorrhages in the brain. That's just the tip of the iceberg of the use of steroids in the chain, the food chain of um, non-organic foods that the average American consumes on a daily basis. Unbelievable. So what do you do with all this information? First of all, I do hope that you appreciated the um, smorgasbord of, of con concerns that were brought up to me that when I was looking over these topics, I decided I don't want to choose one or two for a show. They're all so important. Maybe if I break them up in smaller segments, this might be useful. Now, if you like this format of smaller segments, as opposed to me doing an entire show on, let's say, you know, intermittent fasting, but you like to hear several things on one show, please, you have to let me know. If I don't know, I can't give you what you want. Let me know your topics, let me know your interests, let me know your health concerns, and then email me at info at blooddetective.com. I will add one last thing. It is very important when you are trying to figure out how you should conduct yourself in your life and for your health, that you do work with a qualified health professional. Whether it is me or someone like me, you want that person to be a doctor because you need them to be able to do the appropriate blood work and urine tests and other sorts of assessments to make sure that you are getting exactly what you need because what you need may be completely different from what someone else needs. You know, I'm always having patients see me and I'll get this patient in and they're real excited and they'll be there. Let's say it's a, it's a, it's a wife with her husband and she's super excited and she will inevitably say to me, oh, Dr. Wald, once you fix me, if you fix me, then my husband will see you. And then I say, look, I'm gonna do everything I can to work with you so you get healthy. But if we don't fix you, that doesn't mean we can't fix your husband, right? <laughs> so it's just interesting how logic works and is different among, among people. So I would encourage you to use my website at drmichaelwalt.com. Search the search bar for any topics that you want. The next show topic I believe is going to be uh, all about hormones. I'm going to talk about growth hormone and estrogen and progesterones and how your lifestyle causes hormone disruption. And by that term, I mean messing up your hormones to screw up your health. Maybe that should be the title. Messing up your hormones will screw up your health. I like interesting titles. Okay, once again, my name is Dr. Michael Wald. You're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. You have listened to this entire show. Congratulations. Please let me know if I can do anything more for you. You can call me at 914552 1442, my website's super easy, right? DrMichaelWall.com, and you can email me at info at blooddetective.com. Thank you all so much. Take care and be well.
Show you a statue. Show you- 